the complete way of yoga. Uh, what yoga is all about is the same thing that brings us uh, here today. So to understand yoga, we have to first understand what brings us here today. So my question to you, first question, uh, why are we here? Why did, why did you come today? I came uh, intuitively because uh, Thalia told me she's going to do a seminar and I felt, oh, that's something I have to attend. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Very good. <laughs> Other ideas? Why are you here? Chance, it just sort of happened. Mm -hmm. This is my daughter. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh -huh, I know. Somebody else was going to come leave mm -hmm. and I did. Oh, wonderful. Other ideas? For me, I feel that it's uh, uh, like, uh, the right timing, meaning it's spring, things are starting, and I'm looking for the space to sort of relax into and have clarity. Mm -hmm. So oh. I think this, I know from my experience, whenever I do this, I do get more time. Uh -huh. Wonderful. Other ideas? For me, it was about time to explore other sides and aspects, mm -hmm. and I felt I had to, I wanted to make a gift to myself. Mm -hmm. This is my gift to myself. Oh, very nice one. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's uh, okay to say that all of us are here because we thought it will give us some benefit, something good, right? None of us would come if we thought we are coming to suffer. Hmm? So the yogis of India of many years ago, they have identified that all the actions we do in life, they have one purpose, and this is to feel good and to avoid suffering. And they saw it as a power that is um, enforced upon us. It's not our choice. All of us will always try to achieve good, and all of us will always try to avoid suffering. And try to think of all your daily activities, you will see that from the moment you wake up in the morning until you go to sleep, there is only these two forces directing your decisions. How do I achieve good and how do I avoid suffering? Is that correct? Even take a criminal, you know, a big criminal or a murderer. Even him, if you ask him, do you want to succeed in your crime or do you want to fail, what will he say? I want to succeed. And you ask him, uh, do you want the police to catch you or do you want to be able to escape? He would like to escape. So all of us are trying to achieve something good and to avoid suffering. And then the yogis, they uh, look, were looking on humankind and they said, uh, it is very interesting that all of us want to achieve this good and avoid suffering, but uh, none of us succeeds. None of us is uh, able to really hold the good and to really avoid suffering. And then they asked, how can it be? that all of us want the same thing, but we cannot achieve it. And they started to investigate into the root of um, suffering, how to avoid suffering, and into the root of goodness and how to achieve goodness. And uh, here we can tell uh, a little bit the story of Buddha in very general lines. I'm not going to go deep in that, but this emphasizes very, uh, very accurately this idea of uh, this investigation of yoga. Buddha was a prince and he was living in a castle, very much uh, protected. And of course, uh, the king and the queen, they didn't want him to face the suffering of life. So they sh sheltered him inside the walls of the castle and in that there was uh, nothing bad going on. All was only 
the sun was shining, the flowers were blooming, but everything was good. But the one day Buddha decided to escape, to go out of the walls of the castle, and the minute he stepped out, he saw three things. He saw a sick person, uh, an old person, and a dying person, and a dead person. And uh, then he realized that there is suffering in this world, and since we have a body, we are bound to someday get sick, or to get old, or to die, and in all these processes, there is suffering. And then he uh, realized that this suffering is unavoidable. You cannot avoid it as long as you have a body. But he felt he really wanted to find a way how to avoid this suffering. And so he joined uh, a group of uh, people that were busy in um, uh, trying to transcend the body, to go beyond the body, because they said if the suffering is in the body, if we transcend the body, we will go beyond suffering. And these people, what they used to do, it was very common in India, uh, they used to take very long fasts, no eating, to say, I am not the body, so I can do whatever I want, this doesn't affect me. Or they will torture the body in different ways, like uh, walking on fire, sleeping on nails. Uh, there was even, and this is true, this was happening in India, People, um, for example, uh, yogis that were cutting pieces of their hands to show that I am not a body. And this uh, and Buddha joined them for many years. He was with them, doing all these practices, uh, trying to transcend the body. And after all these years, eventually he came and told them, listen guys, this is not working. <laughs> you can try to say I am not a body as much as you want, but none of us is uh, released from suffering. We still suffer. And then he said, okay, I'm going to explore into the root of suffering. I want to understand what is there. And so he sat under the tree, went into deep, deep meditation, and came out enlightened and said, I know the way out of suffering. And this way out of suffering was actually not only Buddha's way out of suffering, but this was the yoga's way out of suffering, because before Buddha, there was no Buddhism. There was, you say, Buddha was a yogi. Okay, there was yoga, this was this state of mind of how to go, um, how to achieve the good that we want and how to avoid the suffering. Can I ask a question? Please, yes. Why uh, does yoga consider that all the suffering comes from the body? The soul suffers as, as well and we can mm -hmm. suffer mm -hmm. very deeply even if our body is yeah. in she doesn't say all the suffering comes from the body but she says as long as we have a the body it is unavoidable that we suffer so this is like the first reason why we suffer but of course all the levels can be in some way there can be suffering in every one of them and soon when we are going to see the reason why we suffer it will be more clear but it's not only the body that uh, causes us to suffer um, and so yoga was looking into this uh, root of suffering like Buddha and all the rest of them this was very common um, uh, search in India how to overcome the suffering and then before we start to investigate deeply we have to understand what is this suffering in our life so tell me where do we suffer in life when do we suffer? Does it have to be big, big suffering, that uh, like an earthquake or something like this? 
to suffer? Mm-hmm. We suffer through the thoughts. Uh-huh. The thoughts cause us suffering. What else? The stories we create. Mm-hmm. Stories. Expectations and our expectations are not met. Uh-huh. Wonderful. When we don't get what we want mm-hmm. and when we get what we don't want. Uh-huh. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, what else? When we are sick, for example, we suffer. When we get old, we suffer. Okay? So, this suffering is something of our daily life. It's not uh, something big that has to happen. It's, it can be this little dissatisfaction because there is a fly that is bothering me. You know, this is a little suffering. And it can be because the wind is too strong or, uh, I don't know, I was expecting something and it didn't come. So, this suffering that we are talking about that is unavoidable can be all these little suffering that are uh, following us in this life. And the yoga has a wonderful name for suffering. Do you know how they call suffering? Dukkha. And do you know what the literal meaning of dukkha is? It's a wonderful thing. It's contraction of the inner space. It is this movement here. And now I want you to experiment something. Uh, Think about... uh, uh, clear your mind for a minute and then think about something really bad that happened to you or something really bad that is going to happen and see what happens to your inner space. Think that, try to remember something really bad. Can you feel it? What happens in the body or in the system? Immediately this dukkha. And so they said this dukkha, this feeling of contraction, whenever situation changes is unavoidable. But we all want to attain what? Do we like to be in this state? No. Immediately we are starting to struggle with that and we are trying to get into sukha. Sukha is the expansion of the inner space. And now let's try this. You see how well they have defined it. Think about something good that happened to you or something good that is going to happen and see what's going on inside. Can you feel it? Immediately, there is this expansion, the sukha. And so, Yoga said, we are trying to avoid dukkham, this contraction, and we want to achieve this sukham. And do we manage in life to achieve sukham, this expansion? We do, but it is temporary. So, If we look at our life, we will see that every time we have this contraction of the inner space, the dukkham, we start to struggle, yeah, and we try to change our actions or whatever until it changes and it becomes sukkham. And then we have these few moments of expansion when the sun is shining, I got the good news, I am a little bit like that, and then after some time, I don't know, bad news, something this, boom, again, this contraction. And again, we start to struggle until we get that. So, it's not that we don't have these moments of relief, of suffering, and these moments of good, but we cannot hold them steady. And there is a good reason why we cannot hold them steady. Actually, two reasons. First of all, yoga tells us, we cannot hold this uh, feeling of... um, Sukham steady because it is not of the nature of things in this reality to be steady. Is there something that is permanent in this life? Not. 
ah, not a thought is not a permanent thing, a feeling is not a permanent thing, and also the outside things are not permanent. But uh, what have we been taught? Where do we look for this uh, sukham? In the form of what? In the form of feeling. So as long as I am trying to find sukham in the form of a feeling, it is unavoidable that it will change because all feelings are temporary. Do you understand this idea? And also they say, uh, it's not only that we are looking for this feeling of sukham, which is unavoidable that it will change, the things that, we th that are bringing us this feeling are also changing. For example, um, the weather makes me expand, but the weather is going to change. And when it, it will change, my uh, feeling of sukham will also change. Or I uh, put my sukham in my career, for example, and uh, it gives me some expansion, but my career can also change. My boss can change, the people can change, many things can happen, and then again the dukham. So they have taught us to look for good in external things which are temporary in nature, so the good they, they, that they bring us is also a temporary good. Do you understand this idea? So, does it mean that I have to stop looking for good in external things? No, only that I have to remember it is going to be temporary. But we will see that the yoga will tell us, you can have a temporary good, no problem, temporary suffering, no problem, but there is a way to achieve uh, a good which is not temporary and which does not depend on external things or on uh, emotions or feelings or thoughts. A uh, very, very deep sense, it's not even a sense, it's uh, a state <laughs> of uh, goodness. Do you know how they call it? It's called Ananda. Ananda. They, in uh, English, we translate it as a bliss. But what they want to say, uh, and the literal uh, meaning of Ananda is uh, un, like uh, eternal dance. It is when we have this feeling of bliss, doesn't matter the outer circumstances, doesn't matter the inner circumstances also. My mind could be sometimes happy, sometimes sad, but deeper than that, I have this feeling of bliss inside. So this is the state the yoga wants to take us, and this is possible, we will see exactly how. So one reason why we cannot hold a steady good is because we look for it in something which is temporary. As long as we do that, we will get temporary good, it's okay, but we have to understand it's going to pass. The second thing they say, we are looking for good in things that their nature, their essence is not good. For example, I can say um, chocolate makes me feel good. And then I eat one piece of chocolate, I feel wonderful. But what happens if I eat a whole pack of chocolate? I will feel awful. Yeah? But if goodness was in the nature of the chocolate, then it would make sense that the more chocolate I eat, the amount of good has to grow inside me, the same like uh, the amount of cacao and calories is growing inside me the more chocolate I eat. But the amount of goodness is not growing inside me. Okay? On the contrary, it eventually makes me suffer. The same with money. They taught us if you have money, you will be happy, right? Have you ever seen a person with a lot of money and not happy? 
many times we see that. Huh? Many times. Why? Because the goodness is not in the nature of money. And uh, if it was in the nature of money, the more money I had, my goodness had to grow and grow and grow. But we see the more money I have, sometimes my worries, they grow or my whatever can grow. So as long as I'm looking for good in things which their essence is not to bring good, I, it can result in suffering. And then you will see that yoga takes us to a journey to discover, so what is the source of good? What is the thing that its essence is good? And, uh, and when I get, the more I get of it, then really the more uh, good will grow inside me. There is something like this. Do you have any idea what it can be? Uh, love will be a manifestation of that. That is deeper than that. Compassion. Compassion will be a result of that also. Balance. Balance will be a result of that. It is peace. A, peace will be a result of that. Space. It will also be a result of that. They say it is our own nature. Our own nature is the source of our goodness in life. And so the more we discover that, who we really are, beyond of our thoughts, our feelings, our identities, our bodies. When we discover who we really are, we discover the source of, the source of this bliss. And so it is not that I have to look it outside. On the contrary, the, we will see the whole process of yoga is to go inside and it's like um, uh, to take the pieces the, that cover my nature. It's a process of cleaning. So I clean and I clean and I clean and eventually I found this I find this jewel, this thing which is the source of my goodness. And once I found that, because this is me, can anybody take it away from me? No. This is my own nature, my own existence. So uh, then it is not a good that can be changing. It is not a good that can be taken away. It can, it's not a good that is... Uh, uh, can result in suffering. And it is already, we have it. And this is the best news. Huh? We already have it. It's why in meditation sometimes, mm -hmm. when you connect to the self, you just, because mm -hmm. I get some moments in meditation and I do feel the bliss. Yes, like, exactly. But as soon as it comes, I react to it yeah. and then it's gone. It covers again with the mind, with yeah. the thoughts. But we will see the way of how we can stay there, or it's not stay there, I don't have to stay there because it's already me. Yeah, I only have to realize it is there all the time. Even if my mind is troubled, I am still there. Even if everything is collapsing around me, I am still there. Once I know my nature, this bliss will go with me everywhere, doesn't matter the outer circumstances. Okay? So, uh, we have understood why we cannot hold this uh, permanent good that we want. And so, meanwhile, it's okay to have a temporary good. Uh, I don't think we have to, you know, uh, avoid everything that makes us feel good. No, only that I have to know that it will be followed by suffering because I can lose it, it can change, different things can happen. And then we live this life between goodness, uh, good and suffering, or uh, uh, enjoyment and suffering. And uh, together with that, we can do the journey to find the source of our uh, inner self and then the inner bliss or the permanent bliss. Any questions so far? 
And the yoga is so clever, they put this uh, process of how to search for uh, this idea of suffering and how to go beyond suffering in a very systematic way of, uh, we call it, the Buddhism call it, calls it the Four Noble Truths of Buddha. Maybe you've heard this idea, we're going to present it. But this is not, um, uh, this is not only, only Buddha's idea. This was the way they were thinking that, in that time in India. And we're going to make it a uh, five truth. Mm -hmm. Buddha will excuse me. <laughs> he presented in four. Well, we we're going to present it in five and to understand very deep the process. So the first truth says something very simple. They say uh, the suffering in this life is unavoidable. It is we cannot avoid this dukkha, this uh, contraction of the inner space because we cannot because life is changing all the time and we talked about it already. And when they say uh, la, this suffering is unavoidable, uh, they say this is like uh, the disease of this life. Okay? And um, they say every time we, we take form as human beings, it is guaranteed that we will suffer, and it is guaranteed that we will try to avoid the suffering. And this thing is so deep inside us that I don't, I never met a person that didn't try to avoid suffering. You know, even this is automatic. My leg hurts. My leg does like that. I'm not even thinking about this. It is so natural for us to try to avoid the suffering. So the first uh, truth says suffering is unavoidable. And the second truth says something very wonderful. It says there is a reason why we suffer. And this reason is that we have some kind of wrong knowledge or that we lack some kind of knowledge. This is why we suffer. So first of all, we can say, uh, this is very good news when somebody says there is a reason for something. There is a reason for suffering. Why is that good news? Because it's avoidable. <laughs> because it's? It's avoidable. Avoidable in what way? Uh, through practice. Yeah, but why is it when they say there is a reason for, for suffering, what we can do with that? How to avoid the suffering then? Remove the reason. Very good. Remove the reason. If something is caused by something else, if I move the reason for this something to manifest, then it will not be at all. Okay, if I take the reason, the cause, the result will not be. So when they say there is a reason why we suffer, this is very, very good news. So we can do something with the cause of suffering. And we will see what we are going to do with that. And not only that they say there is a cause for suffering, they say something very interesting. What is the cause of suffering? They say the cause of suffering is wrong knowledge. Wrong knowledge. Now, let's uh, investigate a little bit. Usually, what do we think the cause of suffering is? Usually, why do we suffer? This or that external Very good. Uh -huh. We usually blame life for our suffering. You know, this guy again, and this boss again, and my mind again. Okay, I find many, many reasons for suffering, but they say no. The suffering is because we, each of us, possess some kind of wrong knowledge or lack of knowledge, we have some kind of lack of knowledge, 
And this is what causes us to suffer. Why is that good news? That this is the cause of suffering? Very good. Because knowledge is something I can change. This is something that is in my control. But to change my boyfriend? My God, I've tried, I cannot. To change my boss, to change the weather? This is out of our reach. But our knowledge, we can change. And we're going to see exactly how. All the yoga we will see is about changing this knowledge. And so... Uh, uh, this is very good news. The cause of suffering is knowledge. Okay, we can do something about that. And they say it is not. Uh, there are different uh, knowledges, but actually there is one specific knowledge with why we suffer. We are going to meet it a little bit later. But we can discuss uh, how knowledge influences our life. And I'm going to give you a very nice example. <clears throat> Imagine you are going to meet somebody you don't know anything about. Okay, he's waiting in a room. Imagine you don't know anything about him. Now imagine yourself entering the room. Okay? You have the image? You don't know anything about this person. And now, imagine the same situation, but one minute before you enter the room, somebody whispers in your ear that this person is very dangerous and he's going to harm you and you have to be very careful. Okay? Now imagine yourself entering the room. Are you entering in the same way? Huh? Not so much, huh? You are going to be like that. And now imagine, one minute before you enter the room, somebody whispers in your ear, this is the most wonderful person you are going to meet and this is going to be your partner for life, blah, blah. Now how you enter the room? Completely different. So this is the power knowledge has upon us. It... Uh, determines our actions. Even if we don't know, I will act upon this, I will see reality according to the knowledge that I have. And what the yoga tells us, listen people, you have wrong knowledge about life. And from the minute you have been born until now, you are looking at life from this wrong point of view. And this is why you suffer. But change this knowledge and you will see that life is one big party. It is not so much suffering there. Okay? And so imagine, you know, this idea, uh, so simple, only that we've been whispered in the ear the wrong knowledge. And just now we have to do some process to change the knowledge and then everything will be okay. So how much, uh, how much uh, importance knowledge has upon our life and we can ask uh, how do we get knowledge in this life what how did the how did we collect knowledge in this life the parents mm -hmm. our parents school religion education society, society. friends mm -hmm. very good we can say <laughs> all of our life experiences have determined our knowledge this is we are like a pool all the knowledge comes through the senses, from what I hear, what I see. Everything is collected inside, and now this, from this knowledge, I am acting in this life. And how important it is to make sure that the knowledge I am acting through is right knowledge. Because if I'm acting with wrong knowledge, in this uh, example with the person in the room, if what they told me that he is very dangerous is wrong knowledge, I'm going to miss a very interesting opportunity maybe to meet a wonderful person, but I will not see it because I will be so suspicious all the time. So 
we have to make sure this is right knowledge, but did we choose the knowledge that we have now? Not at all. So we are already in a big mess of knowledge that we didn't choose. And from this knowledge we are acting in life and this knowledge is what causes us to suffer. Um, so this is the second truth. They say the reason we suffer is wrong knowledge and they call it very nice name. Do you know how they call this wrong knowledge in yoga? They call it avidya. Avidya. Vidya is knowledge and a is lack of knowledge. So this is why I say it can be like wrong knowledge or lack of knowledge. And we want, we will see that we will change it to something else. Isn't it, is it not, seeing, not seeing things the way they are? Yeah, uh -huh. yes, okay. exactly. Because the same with this example with the person in the room, I don't see him the way he is. Yeah. I see him through the knowledge I have about him. And so we will see exactly. Uh, and when the yoga talks about the reason for the suffering, this avidya, is, they talk actually about very specific knowledge, but I'm not going to tell you yet. You have to come tomorrow and the day after <laughs> to understand really what this uh, wrong knowledge is. But you will see how interesting it is. So this is the second truth. Okay? It is there is a cause of suffering and this is wrong knowledge and both of them very good news because we can do something about it. The third truth says something very interesting. It says there is a state of living without suffering. And we can live without suffering. Why do we need to know this truth that we can live without suffering? Why is this important to say? Hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And motivation. Yeah, because if I didn't think there is a way out, I will not even try. And so I have to know there is something to... Uh, to aspire, to hope for, or there is a place I can reach. And, but uh, this is very strange because the first time, the first truth was suffering is unavoidable. And now the third truth is there is a state without suffering. So how do you explain these two? First they say there is not avoiding suffering, and then they say you can live without suffering. They also reality and they reality. Mm, okay. Almost. How can it be? Because it depends on the knowledge. As long as I am in the state of wrong knowledge, suffering is unavoidable. But change the knowledge and you will see that suffering is avoidable. Okay? There is actually no suffering. So it's only about this changing of knowledge. And there is a state without suffering. The fourth truth says, the way to... Uh, go beyond suffering or to be released from suffering is through what? This is the technique. But what do I need to go beyond suffering? I need right knowledge. Right knowledge. Why right knowledge? Because if I have right knowledge, then I don't have wrong knowledge. And if I don't have wrong knowledge, I don't have suffering because the wrong knowledge was the reason for the suffering. And we can put it, uh, because this is starting to form the way of yoga. It says, uh, if there is right knowledge, then there is no wrong knowledge. 
because it cannot exist in the same time. I cannot have right knowledge and wrong knowledge about something, the same thing, at the same time. I either know this is a watch, yeah, or I think this uh, can be a duck or a phone or whatever. But the minute I know this is a watch, then all the wrong knowledge that I had before is not existence, non-existence, okay? And because the wrong knowledge uh, was the cause for the suffering, if there is no wrong knowledge, then there is no suffering, okay? So, the fourth truth says that if we have right knowledge, then we don't have suffering. Or the, uh, through right knowledge, we can be released from suffering, okay? And now we have to ask, uh, or let's uh, review one minute the uh, four truths. They say the first truth told us suffering is unavoidable. It's like to say there is a disease. Okay? Imagine you are sick and uh, you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, oh, you have a cold. Okay? This is like to say there is suffering. And then the second truth, uh, the doctor says, but. Uh, I know the cause for your cold, you have infection, you have this uh, virus or germ, whatever. This is like to say, there is a reason for the disease, there is a reason for the suffering. And that's, the reason is the wrong knowledge. And then the doctor tells you, the third truth, he tells you, but don't worry, you will be healthy. Okay? Don't worry, there is a state of we can live without suffering. This is the third uh, truth. And then the doctor says, here is the prescription. This is the four truth, right knowledge. Here is the prescription for your uh, disease. And now uh, you have this, uh, you go from the doctor, you have this note, this prescri prescription for medicine. Um, is this enough? That I have the prescription for the medicine? You have to take it. Yeah. <laughs> First I have to obtain it somewhere. Huh? Somebody has to sell me the drug. And then I have to take it and to take it exactly like I was ordered to take it. And so we need a fifth truth to tell us where to find the right knowledge. So where do I find right knowledge? Who sells right knowledge? Inside. Hmm. What else? Any other ideas? Where do we get right knowledge? Teacher. Hmm. Teacher? Any other ideas? So, to understand where we get right knowledge, we have to understand first how do we get knowledge? What is the instrument through which we obtain knowledge? What is our instrument of knowledge? How do we obtain knowledge? Mind. Very good. It is through the senses and the mind. Okay, this is our instrument. Like, my phone is my instrument with which I can make phone calls, okay? and my mind is an instrument through which I can take knowledge. For example, unconscious person does not take knowledge. Do you know how they check if a person is conscious or not? They do like this near his ear, they shout his name and they press very painful uh, points in the body. And if the person doesn't react, it means he is unconscious. And so, uh, if the mind is not active, we cannot get knowledge at all. But once the mind is active, or when the mind is active, the, the purpose of the mind uh, the job of the mind is to obtain knowledge. So, to get right knowledge, I must use my mind. But, uh, in what, uh, or we can say, 
does it guarantee that my mind will give me right knowledge? No. What is the condition when my mind will give me right knowledge? When will my phone be able to make phone calls? Or my car, when will it be able to take me long distances? Hmm? When it's on? When it's healthy. When it's healthy. Very good. When it is operating well. Okay? Not all the instruments as they are will perform their job. They have to be functioning well. So my mind has to be in a good state. It has to be clean and it has to be clear and it has to be steady to get me right knowledge. Uh, to understand this, I can give um, a few examples. Uh, imagine you are holding a torch. No, let's start with a more. We'll go through a few of them. Imagine you wear glasses. Nobody, uh, you have glasses, very good. So I wear glasses also, but I'm with contact lenses now. Your glasses are helping you to see the world in correct way. What happens when they are dirty and they have all these oil stains? It's blurry. Yeah, it becomes blurry. Okay, so uh, you have to constantly clean your glasses in order to see the colors and uh, everything correct, right? What if they are broken? What they will show you? Altered. Uh -huh. Distorted. Yeah, distorted. Uh -huh. Distorted view, very good. So, uh, our mind, if it is not clean and if it is a little bit broken or not steady, will give us wrong images of what there is, okay? Or if you had like color, like uh, sunglasses, do the sunglasses show me reality as it is? No, it shows me reality, but not completely as it is, a little bit colored, you know, with the color of the lenses. So, the mind is the same, it shows me what there is, but I have to make sure that the mind is clear, that it has no coloring. What is the coloring of our mind? What do you think it will be? Feelings. Huh? Feelings. Feelings, very good. What else? What colors are our mind? Thoughts and feelings. And our former knowledge. Our former knowledge is like, yeah, exactly. What we've talked about before, all of that, like this whispering in the air, this guy is very dangerous. And then this idea of this guy is dangerous is coloring my mind, and now when I go and see the person, I don't see him as, if he, as, he, as he is. I already see him with suspicion. Even maybe this is not true, but this is how our mind acts. And so I have to make sure the mind is clear. But it's not only that it has to be clear. I give you another example. Um, imagine you have a torch, and the torch is an instrument to help me see what there is at night. Um, so, if imagine I have the batteries and the light, everything is working well, but the glass is covered with mud. Is it going to help me? Of course not. Okay, so this is, I have to clean, this is the same example with the glasses. But now imagine the glass is clean, okay, but the batteries are very low. Is it going to help me the torch? No, okay, because the light will not be enough to see what there is. So I have to make sure there is enough light, enough energy to activate the mind. If my mind is dull, and we all know it, uh, when we wake up in the morning, and our mind is like this, and uh, the last, the, if somebody comes and starts talking to me, what I will tell you? 
let me wake up first, you know, don't talk to me, don't bother me now, I cannot understand you anyway, this is when the batteries are still low, and so I have to make sure the batteries are okay. But imagine, the batteries are good, there is very good light, but my hand goes like that. I cannot control my hand, and this is the torch, and I'm trying to see what is in front of me. Is it going to help me? Not at all. I have to be able to steady, steady the torch, and then I will be able to see. So, do you know this state of unsteady mind? When I have so many thoughts and so many things are taking my attention all the time and I, I'm trying to concentrate on reading a page in my book and can I do it? No, this is the unsteady mind. And so the mind can be under different influences. We're going to go into that a little uh, deeper later uh, because this is very interesting to understand really what affects the mind. Uh, so if I want to get uh, right knowledge, I have to make sure that the mind is clean and it has enough energy, and it is also steady. Uh, and then, because we all know this is not the state of our mind, usually, um, and there is a reason why this is not the state of our mind. Uh, do you know, have they ever taught you how to wash your hands, and brush your teeth, and clean your body and your room? Did uh, they teach us how to clean the mind? Ever? No. Not when... So imagine uh, that for 50 years, how, how much we live, we never wash our hands. What would be the state of our hands now? Dirty. Dirty and as a result? Sick. <laughs> and a result? What would be the problem? Yeah, I will not be able to use them properly because I will lose the sensitivity and the movement that the hands are supposed to give me. Okay? What happens if I never wash my teeth? Huh? For 50 years I never brush them. I'm going to lose them all, they're going to be rotten and they're going to cause me a lot of pain also and I will not be able to eat. So, all this they have taught us, very nice, but they never taught us how to clean the mind. And so now we come with very dirty minds, and uh, this is also something interesting to ask. What is the mind dirty from? Wrong hmm? knowledge. Hmm? Not, uh-huh. yeah, whatever it came in contact with, hmm? like my hands, whatever they come in contact with, they're going to be dirty from that. If they, not from everything, only what they touch. And my teeth are going to be dirty with what goes into my mouth. So my mind is going to be dirty with everything that it ever came in touch with. How does the mind come in touch with things? Through the senses. Through the senses. And how many things our senses come in contact with? Infinite. Endless. Infinite, yeah. Okay? So our minds are mega dirty, okay, full of things they came in contact with, and all of that is blocking our view and we cannot see see reality as it is. I can only see reality as I think it is. And uh, this is one thing, the mind, the dirty mind, but also uh, the unsteady mind. Mm -hmm. uh, They taught us a little bit how to um, make our body strong and my muscles and all this, how to control different things. But did they teach us from young age how to control the mind? 
Do you know how we control the mind? We don't even know. We're going to learn, but we don't necessarily know how to control the mind. There is a way to do it. Like, uh, I know how to control my phone. Okay? And for to drive a car, I had to take uh, driving lessons to operate the car properly. But uh, they never gave us driving lessons for the mind. We don't know how to operate it, but it, this is a very advanced instrument. And uh, we have to learn how to study it, how to use it properly. We're going to learn this. So, all the yoga techniques, what they aim it, what their aim is, is to clean the mind and to teach us how to use the mind, how to control it, how to make it steady. And once we do that, when we have a clear mind and a steady mind, then we can start to look at things and to start to get right knowledge. And so this is what yoga is about. So to get right knowledge, what do I need? I need clear mind, clear and steady mind. And because we know this is not our starting point, <laughs> we don't. We have to then do something about it. And then what we do is what we call yoga techniques or practices. knowledge 
or the knowledge that you get every time you enter the room influence what? Perception. Your perception and? Emotions. Emotion and as a result, what? My actions. Okay? It was eventually when I imagine myself entering the room, my actions are going to be different. So when I change to write knowledge, I have to change. It's not only that I'm not going to have wrong knowledge, I'm going to have right actions. My actions are going to change. They have to, in my daily life, my actions have to transform. And the process of yoga is never complete without changing our behavior or our actions in life. It, it, eventually, uh, one of the definitions of yoga is uh, skill in action. My actions are completely different and we will see this also. And then once my actions are different, then I can go completely beyond suffering. Do you know what the word for action is in uh, yoga, in Sanskrit? Karma. Very good. They use the word karma. And karma, we have heard many times about it. What do you know about karma? What karma is? They refer to it as the result of our action. But actually the literal meaning is action. But so why don't they talk about the result of our action? Because they say, in this life there is no action without a reaction. And there is also always a result to my action. So actually what we experience is not our actions, but the results of our actions. If my actions are wrong, um, I will get what they call bad karma. Okay, I'm doing the wrong action. I will get, as a result, suffering. But if I'm doing right actions in this life, I'm doing what they call good karma, which means I will not get suffering, I will get bliss instead. So eventually it has to change the, uh, our actions, and once it changes our actions, our life is transformed. And another very interesting thing to say about that, if we check, we will see that our life is only the results of our actions, but they are not the results of our reactions, emotional reactions, and they are not the results of our thoughts. I will give you, I will explain. Uh, your job, your house, your husband, or whatever, partner, your kids, what, uh, every, the car you drive, what you wear, all of this is the results of your actions. But, um, for example, in relationship, I can have many different emotions towards my partner. One day I can love him, one day I can hate him. Yeah, one day he is the most wonderful guy, one day it's the guy that I say, why the hell am I, did I marry him? Right? I can have many different reactions, many different emotions towards one thing. But what will determine if this person is in my life or not is my actions. Whether I go and we, whether I stay and live with him, or I go and I get divorced. So it's only the action that is um, uh, creating our life. But the reaction, the emotions can be many, many, uh, and changing all the time. Do you understand? But we think, where do we usually put the most importance in the life? In what I feel and what I think. Have you seen that? Have you? This is our tendency. We, the West, uh, 
uh, mind or um, education taught us to be very much involved in what we feel. But it's what we feel is changing all the time. One day I love my job, the other day I hate it. One day it's the most interesting one, the other day it's boring. If I try to uh, base my life according to what I feel, my life will be a roller coaster, up and down, up and down, up and down. But you're gonna say, don't go there. This is going to change all the time. Base your life on what you do. Because what you do will decide uh, how your life is going to be, where you're going to live, who you're going to share it with. And what you feel about these things can change a million times a day. And so eventually it goes all to action, karma. And this is why one of the definitions of yoga is yoga is skill in action. Okay? How to act skillfully in this life. Any questions? So let's so get is action is also, it's, it's also your intentions. Yeah, it, it, it well, starts with an intention. It starts with an intention and to be um, classified as right action, there are uh, different uh, different things it has to answer. For example, it's not only my intention, it has to be with right knowledge. For example, I can try to fix my car, this is a good intention, but if I don't have the knowledge, I can take things out and I can say, oh, this, the car doesn't need this, the car doesn't need and I'm doing a lot of wrong. Okay? So it has to be on, uh, based on right knowledge also, and it has to be also um, without attachment to the results. And what does it mean? It means that we understand that there is, uh, even if I have right, uh, good intentions and I have the best knowledge I have, still there are so many uh, things influencing not only me, the situation that I cannot uh, take all the credit for myself, not for my success and not for my failure. So to be really right action, it has to be detached from the results. For example, I can give a yoga class and uh, let's say at the end of the class somebody comes and tells me, oh, it was a wonderful class. And I say, oh, I'm a wonderful teacher. But am I a wonderful teacher? No. It had to be a lot of other circumstances. For example, he had a nice morning, the sun was shining, uh, he had knowledge like a little bit similar to mine, blah, blah, blah. But I can uh, prepare the same class, exactly, give the same class, and I can, somebody can come to me, the same person, and say, this was horrible uh, class you are, and I say, oh, I'm a bad teacher. But am I a bad teacher? Not at all, because maybe he had a fight with his wife, and he has, hates the rain, and uh, he was taught something completely different than what I teach. You know, but we are so used to taking the results upon ourselves, but we have to understand that uh, I act with the best intention, according to the best knowledge, but what the result is, is beyond, is not only my control. And this is, will define what is right action. More uh, questions? Okay, so let's take a short break uh, until 12.30, and then we continue. It's uh, yes. almost 20 minutes break, yes. that's enough, no? Yes. Okay, so at 12.30 we come back. Okay, we continue. Any questions before we start again? So, the first thing we're going to investigate, if, I hope this is clear, we're going to investigate the yoga techniques and the connection to clear and steady mind. 
And then slowly, slowly we're going to go through all the different uh, phases of the complete way of yoga until everything is very clear. Be enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> So, the yoga techniques are all designed in order to create a clear and steady mind. This is their ultimate purpose. And we're going to uh, talk about all the different yoga techniques and understand exactly how they, uh, what they are and the different names and all of that. But first let's start with an example. Um, imagine you receive as a present a wild horse yeah? and they tell you, uh, you see the mountain there? You see on the mountain there is a horse? This wild horse is yours. And uh, this horse can be your best friend and can serve you uh, in life for whatever you want. What is the, fir the first thing you have to do? Tame. You have to tame it. And uh, where are you going to tame it? Are you going to tame it in the mountain while it's running wild and free? Hmm? Is this a good idea? No. What are you going to do? Catch it. You're going to catch it and tame it. Very good. You're going to put limits. You're going to put borders for the horse. First thing, to have it uh, already restricted. You're going to put some restrictions to the horse movement, so you can start to do a um, process of taming. So, our first yoga techniques are restrictions. Restrictions to what is our wild horse? Is the mind. Okay? Is the mind, yeah, senses and mind. Yeah. And first we have to do is to put restrictions for them. We cannot try to tame the mind inside life where it is running wild. And I cannot uh, do it while I talk to other people or while, uh, while I'm walking in nature. I have to put some borders. And the first border we put is our yoga mat and maybe our cushion that we sit on. And these are going to be the first limits. And uh, uh, we're going to create a um, practice that in that uh, and this practice is going to be the restrictions for our mind for this uh, 10 minutes or 20 minutes or one hour of practice. But I'm going to tell to my mind, now you are doing this and now you are only doing this. Even uh, my mind, uh, is it going to want to be there on the mat? No, no it's going to want to be outside, uh, to talk to somebody, to do all the stuff I have to do. Do you know this feeling? I have a lot of stuff to do, I cannot now sit and close my eyes. And so I have to work against the will of the mind and put it into restrictions. All the, we call it the, the what we call Hatha Yoga. Have you ever heard the name, Hatha Yoga? All the techniques that are called Hatha Yoga are techniques of restrictions. Restrictions for the mind to start the process of taming. And these techniques, they say, uh, when we take this 
horse in the beginning? Can I immediately sit on the horse? Even if I put it inside the fence, can I now sit on it? No. What do I need to do first? Walk it around. Exactly. I have to put a leash, something, and then start to walk it. I cannot, if I try to sit on it, it's going to kick me. So I have to hold it externally by other means, not directly on it, but by other means, and try to lead it my way. The Hatha Yoda, Yoda techniques are techniques that are using the body and are using the breath to control the mind. I cannot yet control the mind uh, directly because it's too wild. And then we can see that for most people it is easy to do movements with the body and this movement that I'm doing with the body or staying in one posture makes the mind also steady. But it's not because I'm using the mind directly. It's because I'm using the movement which is uh, more accessible. The body for most of us is most ac more accessible and more, um, um, how to say, uh, is not refined, it's not uh, gentle, it's gross. Yeah, it's easy to catch okay, or easy to deal with. So by uh, putting my body in different postures, I am already starting to control the mind, but not controlling it directly. This concept is clear. And then, after I have learned to work with the body, and then I'm staying in the posture, and then this mind is becoming a little bit more quiet, I can work with something which is a little bit more refined than the body. I can use the breath. And then we have all the practices that we call pranayama practices. Um, when we work with the body, I didn't say it's called asana, yeah, is how I place the body. And then we have all these different breathing techniques that I can do to control the mind. And um, um, when we are going to do the meditation part, we're going to go through, also you're going to have pranayama practice with Salia, but also when uh, we're going to do the meditation practice and explore a little bit exactly how it controls the mind. But the minute I have to change my breath, immediately the change, the, there is a change of the state of the mind. We can try to do a little bit of um, something, just uh, to feel it very quickly. Just sit comfortable, let your breath be regular. See the state of your mind. And now just try to start breathing more slow and more gentle to make the inhale and exhale more slow and more gentle and tell me what happens to your attention. Did you feel something happening? Mm -hmm. What? My attention was more focused on my breath when mm -hmm. the mind calmed down. Uh -huh. Did you feel it? Mm -hmm. This is pranayama. I don't need all these complicated things with the fingers and the tongue and all these things. It is only this changing of the pattern of the breath already forces the mind to be present. I can, and if I start to think about things I have to do, I'm going to lose the gentle and the slowness of the breath. 
So this is the idea behind what we call pranayama. Is using the breath. Was it difficult to change the breath? Was very easy. Yeah, no problem. I can change the breath, but it's not about changing the breath. It's about changing the state of the mind. So our first techniques are hatha yoga techniques, using the body and the breath to influence the mind. Uh, once the mind is a little bit more calm, or once my horse is a little bit uh, more calm, now it understands that I am a little bit uh, the boss, I can control him, he understands the limits of where he can run. Uh, we have uh, gained some kind of uh, relationship of trust, maybe I'm feeding him and taking care of him. Then I can uh, start to maybe uh, sit on the horse. And now this minute that I sit on the horse, am I going to run to the mountains with the horse? Not yet. I'm still going to be inside the restrictions of the fence, but already riding the horse. This idea of uh, uh, starting to work with the mind directly, but inside limits, this is what we call meditation practices. And in meditation practices, we are already use the ability of the mind. Uh, I'm not using my body. My body is only sitting. And I'm not using my breath. My breath is the normal breath. I'm not changing her. But now I'm using my ability to focus, holding the mind, and we're going to really go deep in that later. And I'm trying to control the mind in a very clever way. Do you know what the basic uh, technical meditation is? What do we do with the mind? to the mind, now you go and, I don't know, count breath, or uh, hold the mantra, or follow the breath. I just give it one thing to concentrate. Is it going to like it? Not at all. <laughs> it's going to try and escape all the time. It's the same when I'm riding the horse. I'm going to tell him, go left, and now you, he has to go left, but he's not going to like it because on the Oh, left this, this side. I'm going to go left, but he wants to go right because there is the grass and the flowers and everything. But I'm going to tell him, no, we're not, we're going there. And he's going to do that. Okay, so this is the basic idea, um, basic technique of meditation, is to tell the mind where to go and make sure it is going there. And it will try to escape and I'm going to bring it back. And it's going to there and I'm going to bring it back again and again and again. This is our way of taming the mind or taming the horse. All these techniques that are uh, meditation-based or concentration, uh, when, where I already work directly with the mind, are called Raja Yoga. of 
breathing and pranayama, but then we have to be introduced also to the meditation techniques. And I don't know why in the West, the yoga got stuck in the Hatha yoga. It got stuck in the body and in the breath, and there was a reason. Um, well, achieve, uh, you know, because it's used to achieve better physical performance. Yeah, because yeah. we need to go deeper. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually the fault of the teachers, mm -hmm. because when the teachers came from India and they saw how bad the mind of the Western person people was, they said we have to. There is no point to talk about meditation at all. They are so busy with external things and stuff like that. We're only going to go in the body, and from there, if they are lucky, maybe they will advance. But this teacher, they all died. And their student never managed maybe to reach the level of starting to practice also the meditation of yoga. And so we, years and years, we are so, we went so deep in the yoga techniques of body and breath, but ignored completely the mind techniques, the um, meditation techniques of yoga. So it's the fault of the teachers, but uh, if we are lucky, we will uh, eventually find our way. I know my way was like this. I started with the body, then with the breath, and then I uh, realized, oh, uh, the yoga is a whole process of self-evolution, and there is this meditation, and then, so when we are lucky, it comes to us, and then we continue the way. So the Hatha Yoga has to lead to Raja Yoga. Okay. Um, maybe we continue with these different yogas. The Raja Yoga will uh, create the, the, um, yes. the state of clear and steady mind. This Is state Raja knowledge, knowledge? Raja. Raja? What about it? What's the definition? Uh, Raja is a uh, uh, royal. Royal. Yeah, it's the royal, 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 royal way. Why? Because this leads directly to clear mind. If Hatha Yoga is not royal because it's like for the people that starts with very scattered and uncontrolled mind, then the Raja Yoga is for people with, that already have some kind of quiet mind and now they can practice the control of the mind. So both of these yogas, they lead, right, they are the yoga techniques and they lead to a clear and steady mind. This clear and steady mind has a word in Sanskrit, in yoga, it's called Samadhi. Have you ever heard this word? Now most of us maybe heard that Samadhi is some very high state of realization or enlightenment as we like to call it. But when we say enlightenment, it is the enlightenment of the mind. It's actually only the clear state of mind. Now if the clear state of mind and the steady state of mind is a natural state or is it uh, supernatural. What do you think? Natural. Completely natural. This is supposed to be the state of our mind. Like uh, my phone is supposed to be working well. Yeah, and my car is supposed to be in a good mechanical way. It's supposed to be. When it is not, this is uh, out of the ordinary. Uh, but we start with so confused mind that we thought, we think that the clear and steady mind is like a high state, but no, this is the basic state. Mm -hmm. This is what it is supposed to be like. Okay, so this samadhi is the, only the state to say, 
my mind is not ready to concentrate. My mind is not ready, ready, or my horse is not ready for what? For me to start riding it, you know, to start using it for what it can do. And what the mind can do? Hmm? First, what is it meant to do? Get us knowledge. Okay? Get knowledge for us. And then, after we have reached this state of Samadhi, we are starting the process of investigation using the mind. And this process of investigation is called Jnana Yoga. Now, you write it like this. Jnana, but you say Jnana, this is like a silent J. Jnana Yoga is to say the process of investigating to get uh, wisdom, to get right knowledge. Jnana is wisdom. So it is not, uh, this meditation is not the final state or the final technique. And this state of clear mind, when I feel quiet and calm and happy, this is not where it, yoga ends, because this quiet and happy, we all know what happens to that. It's going to change the, the minute I get home and I meet my husband, it's going to change. But I have to use it to do jnana yoga, to start to investigate into the nature of things. And what we are investigating into is first the nature of the outside world. What is the nature of life? And we're going to go into that uh, later on in our seminar to the different types of right knowledge that we can get. But we are going to also investigate into the nature of thoughts and feelings and how this mind works. We want to have information about that. But we're going to, but more than that, we want information about who we are. Beyond the mind, beyond the thoughts, beyond the feelings, who am I? This is our most deep investigation. This is the niyana we want. We want to know who we are. Uh, so the yoga has to lead to this. And these are uh, also like types of meditation, but it's not the meditation of concentrating in one object, but it's what is called analytical meditation. It's where we take a subject and we start to uh, investigate into the nature or uh, also this technique of what we call mindfulness that we start to observe the nature of the thoughts and for example if you have or imagine if you never done it or if you have done it when you observe the nature of the thoughts you are steady and you look at the thoughts what will you discover for example what can you discover about the thoughts? How will they change from to seem? Yeah, that they are always changing. This is very, this is very important knowledge because when I understand that my thoughts are always changing, and maybe I can also see the connection between things, then I can, I will not panic with every thought I have. And today sometimes we panic. For example, if I wake up in the morning with the thought, uh, what is the point in life, and I want to kill myself. When I don't remember that this thought is temporary, I must, I must think that something is wrong with me, and then I go to the psychiatrist, and then I start to take pills because I'm in depression. But if I have this right knowledge, I say, okay, this is a five seconds 
thought. I don't have to change all my life because of this thought. Yeah, so this is, for example, one very basic knowledge that uh, we should have and will change our life. So the Jnana Yoga is this yoga of investigation and it leads us to right knowledge. So from this I start to do Jnana Yoga and Jnana Yoga leads us to the right knowledge. But it is not the right knowledge that is enough. After I get right knowledge, I actually uh, will know who am I and what is the nature of my mind, what is the nature of my mind. It's just a step, right? Yeah. It's just a step. After yeah. we yeah. do this, we do one. Yeah, and after that, this is something very interesting is happening. As we said, is our knowledge that causes us to act or uh, determine, determines our actions. So our actions in life are going to change. And when our actions in life are changing, this is also a practice of yoga. And you know how it is called? Karma. Very good. <laughs> karma yoga. Okay, so the right knowledge has to lead me to karma yoga. It means that all my actions are different. For example, if we look at our life today, we will see that all our actions are to make us feel good, right? To enjoy. This is what we think about all the time. I want to enjoy. This is why I choose to eat something. This is why I choose to go to a place. But when I do karma yoga, I understand that the purpose of life is not to enjoy because I already have this uh, bliss inside me, so I don't need enjoyment in outer things. And then I start to live my life uh, for a different uh, purpose, and I do my actions for a different purpose. Do you have any idea what? Okay. Benefit others. To benefit others? Very good. But we can say to serve, to be useful. We start to do useful actions, not only actions that cause me to be happy, to enjoy, because some useful actions don't make me enjoy, like uh, for example uh, to eat cucumber and not a chocolate cake is not so much fun, but it is more useful to eat cucumber than a chocolate cake. I can eat sometimes a chocolate cake, but not every day. A cucumber every day is very good. So uh, my actions are starting to change and this is a practice. It's not a, it will not happen just like that. If I let my actions be whatever they want. I'm going to sit in front of the beach all day and smoke ganja. I don't know, you know, I can do crazy stuff. But when I start to do useful things, then I'm going to be useful for myself because uh, to be useful is not only for others. I have to be useful for myself to make sure my body is healthy, <laughs> that my mind is healthy, and I have to see that my actions are actions that are benefiting everybody. And uh, so this is the karma yoga. And uh, as I told you, uh, all the yoga has to be finished, not only in knowledge, but in action. And after this karma yoga, there is another thing. When I start to use my life in a useful way, my relationship with my life change or with life itself change. And it is not uh, in this uh, feeling of uh, selfishness that we have all the time to my benefit. Even if I do for the benefit of others, I actually do it to my own benefit. And 
I take all the time the glory and the success to my, you know, my, my own, my ego, yeah. Uh, when I do the karma yoga and I do useful action and I do it not um, not for the results also and detached from the result, something different starts to uh, grow inside us and this is what is called the bhakti yoga. Have you ever heard bhakti yoga? What is that, you know? Yeah, it's what we call devotion, but it's not devotion like praising God and all this. It is to understand that uh, there is bigger thing working upon us, that life is bigger than me. Uh, for example, today we can talk and say something like, my life, yeah? We possess, as if we possess life. But after we do all this process, we understand that we don't possess life. Life possesses us. We are servants of life. And when we let this life manifest through us, and uh, one of the things that will manifest is this uh, what we talked in the beginning, our wish to good, for good, that is working upon us all the time, then everything that I will do will be to just to express this, uh, the many faces of life and the wish for life, for goodness. And I, we are in this state of devotion, but it's not devotion to some idea of God, only that our life becomes a, a, a tool, you know, something like maybe like Mother Teresa, you know, or the Dalai Lama, they don't have personal life. Yeah, they have this uh, only serving life, they are servants of life. You know, without demands, without uh, recognition, they don't need anything of that, they only do. So this is the Bhakti Yoga. And it's not something we force. Um, so this Karma Yoga is leading to Bhakti Yoga, or we can say to no suffering, because the result of my right action will be that there will be no suffering. And as a result of that, there will be Bhakti Yoga. But this will be a very natural process. It's not like to believe in God, and I have to believe and God exists or not. It's not that. It's only that my relationship with my life changes. You know, something opens there or changes. And then it comes to Bhakti Yoga. Any questions? So from here we can see that actually the yoga practice has to grow with us. And it doesn't stay the same. For example, in the beginning, in the Hatha Yoga, because our mind, our horse is out of control, the practice has to be very long and to be mostly in the body, a lot of body and a little bit of breath. But the more the mind quiets, then my practice is, uh, I will still do some movements, but not to control the mind. I will do the movements to make sure my body is healthy. It is already different and it can be much shorter. It doesn't have to be one hour of practice, just a little bit of movement to make sure the system is working well a little bit of breathing to make sure the energy is flowing well, but most of my practice will be a meditation practice. And then after I have already got good control on my mind, I will still, I will still keep practicing meditation every day, but it can be a very short practice, only like to clean the instrument and tune it every time. But most of my, uh, most of my work will be in gaining knowledge, in 
working with the knowledge and putting it uh, into my life and starting to view life from this uh, new knowledge. So there will be a lot of work, not on the pillow, but in the daily life. And then, after that, I will advance to actions, and my actions in life will start changing, and then all my relationships will start changing also. So the practice has to grow with us and has to support us in our progress. And when we have a good teacher, the teacher will know how to lead us and we know what to give us every step of the way. It will say, okay, you have reached a good state of mind. Now we can advance to investigation. Now see your actions now like this and like that. And uh, But eventually, this is well, just a little bit out of the topic, but important to say, who is our teacher? Just ourselves, okay? And this is very important because I'm saying this because we have a lot of wrong knowledge about teachers. Uh, because in many texts we have read, maybe they said you have to have a teacher and you have to be devoted to this teacher and you have to never argue with the teacher and all this stuff. So we have this idea that we have to find some person as a teacher. But actually when they talk about this teacher, it's only to say, I have to develop this inner teacher. There will be like a voice inside me that will direct my actions, will direct my, my behavior in life, will uh, advise me which knowledge to use. So an external teacher has one purpose, and it is to help the student develop his inner teacher, or to lead the student into his own inner teacher. And if you come across, and me and Thalia, we came across a teacher that was different than that, and he was a very good teacher in this, because he was demanding, he was the teacher, external teacher, and he would make the students weak, and he would take advantage of the students, and we see it many times, something like this happening. So we can know these are not uh, real teachers. Yeah, and sometimes false teachers are very important because they teach you what a teacher is not, which is also a very good lesson. But eventually, a teacher has to make the student independent, and this is why also our practice, yoga practice, all this is becoming more and more personal. It's not about going to a yoga class. I can still go to a yoga class and practice in a group, but eventually my practice has to be with myself, in my house, in my daily life, in my own relationship, transforming myself, and I have to be leading, uh, led and leading this way. Sorry? Discipline. Yeah, discipline, yeah. But as you see, in the beginning there is a lot of discipline, mm. and afterwards it's only life itself. Mm. Yeah, but discipline. with the horse. Imagine, uh, this is also something we do, we see it a lot, uh, the West, the yoga in the West got stuck in the techniques. So people can practice asana and pranayama for 50 years, even meditation for 50 years, and they forget that eventually with this horse, I have to go out of the fence and run in the mountains, you know? This is what I'm supposed to do with him. So I cannot, it's, it's not to stay on the mat, it is to uh, develop in life, to do good in life, to be, to fulfill my potential in life, to run with this horse, to use the mind for what is meant, meant to do. One thing is to give me knowledge, and the other thing is to be creative, to help me express in life or do good in life, but uh, not to stay in the, with a little mat every day. And you, we see it when a person got stuck on the mat, 
and the techniques are what important or when a person uh, got the benefit of the practice and now transforms his life. Okay, questions about this? So now <laughs> we're going to go deeper into the yoga techniques, a little bit more deep. Uh, there is a text called the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. This is uh, in the yoga we have a few different uh, texts, ancient texts that were written in Sanskrit and they gathered the uh, knowledge of yoga. And one of them is called the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Sutra is like a little, um, it's like a um, sentence. So sentences about yoga. And uh, it is uh, constructed in a very nice way. It is uh, four chapters. And the first chapter is called uh, Samadhi Pada. Pada is a leg or a chapter. And it is called Samadhi Pada. And it, is, uh, it gives definition of this state of clear mind. This is the first chapter. Uh, why do you think a book will start not here, but here? Any ideas? It's a book about yoga, and it doesn't start in the first step. It starts in the second step, in the state of clear mind. Motivation. Very <laughs> to set the goal. First it tells us, this is the goal of the yoga techniques. Okay, this is what a state of uh, uh, your mind, the state of the mind should be. And uh, this, and also why you want to be there. This is the first chapter talking about this. And we're going to go deeper in that later. This is the state of mind, uh, the natural state of mind, or the clear state of mind. And there is a reason why you, go, you want to go there, because if you are there, you will not suffer. And then the second, uh, uh, the second chapter is called Sadhana Pada. Sadhana is the practice. Sadhana is practice. So then it says, okay, you want to go there, but you are not yet ready. You, you don't have the clear mind yet. Then you have to do the yoga techniques, what we call sadhana. And in that chapter, he goes through all the different yoga techniques, and uh, they are called Ashtanga Yoga. Uh, it's not Ashtanga Yoga as we know it, the tradition, but Ashtanga means uh, eight limbs. So, eight limbs of yoga. Um, and in that uh, chapter, he uh, gives description of all the different eight techniques of yoga, which we are going to go in depth in a minute. And explains how to practice, what is important in the practice of this lives. After that, the third chapter is called Vibhuti uh, Pada. And Vibhuti is uh, many times in English they translate it as uh, powers. But actually it is knowledge. What knowledge we get from the practice. And why knowledge and power is the same? Hmm? Because with knowledge we get the power yeah. of to do the Because knowledge is power. Okay, and we can see it in daily life. Whoever has the knowledge is the powerful in his field. 
Okay, if I have knowledge of computer, I am powerful in the field of computer. If I have the knowledge of yoga, I am powerful in the field of yoga. If I have the knowledge of life, I will be powerful in life. So Vibhuti Pada is this chapter that is called that is talking about the right knowledge. Excuse me if I'm not really writing very well because I never care about these things, but Vibhuti Pada is the uh, chapter that is talking what is the result of the clear and steady mind, what kind of knowledge we are going to get. And it's very interesting because it talks about a lot of different knowledge. For example, it says, um, <coughs> if you use your mind to look at the stars, you will know the movement of the stars and the planets. Okay, makes sense? If you uh, use the power of the mind to investigate on how the mind works, you will also know how the mind of other people work. Very, okay, very clear because if I, for example, if I use my clear mind to understand how my cow works, I will understand all the cars. And so like this goes to things, it's not super natural powers, it's only very basic knowledge. Uh, and then he says there is one knowledge which is the most important knowledge and it is the knowledge of who I am and what is my mind. This is the most basic knowledge because this is the, or the most important knowledge because this is the knowledge that will take us out of suffering. We will see it later. So this is the third chapter, Viputipada. Uh, and then uh, comes the fourth chapter. It's called Kaivalya. And Kaivalya is this state of no suffering. And we can say a few words about this also. Kaivalya. He says, okay, you have got the right knowledge. Now I'm going to tell you what is going to happen to your life. And so it is, uh, describes very nicely how our life is transformed and how we act differently, uh, how there is no suffering. There is also one state, if we got all the way, is, uh, it says two things. It says, one, in this life, you are going to get, uh, they call it Dharma Medha Samadhi. Nice name, Dharma Medha Samadhi. It means, they call it like the cloud of bliss. Your life is going to explode with your potential. You can, because you're doing right action, you do it right, you have the right knowledge, you are going to get all the good results of your action. Your life is going to be like this, full of good stuff. But, uh, the yoga is uh, not only talking about no suffering in this life. They are talking about no suffering uh, or, or uh, we can say avoiding uh, even the cause of suffering in the next life or in other words, uh, stop this getting more, uh, more lives or uh, going out of the cycle of uh, birth and death. Uh, you know how they call this cycle of birth and death? Samsara, Yofi. So, this state of Kaivalya, we can say no suffering in this life. This is very nice. But they say not only in this life, we want to go out.
like this. Um, uh, as long or if we have not achieved our final goal, we will get uh, more and more instruments or more and more lives until we fulfill our ultimate goals. It's like uh, as long as I need a phone, every time my phone is going to break, I'm going to buy another one as long as I need it. When am I going to stop buying phones? Only when I don't need it anymore. So they say there is another, uh, another goal in yoga, the very high goal of achieving our, uh, our full potential or the, that we don't need in our body and mind anymore. And then we're going to go completely out of samsara. samsara we're not going to have any more bodies any more incarnations. But this is not necessarily important for us because maybe we like life, you know, and many of us want to stay alive. So I think the first one, no suffering in this life is enough, mostly. <laughs> but some people I meet, some students of mine, for example, and I know myself also, I wanted to stop completely. I'm not interested only in this life. I don't want to get another body. I don't want to be born again. And it doesn't matter if you believe it, that it's possible or not. And then for some people it is to avoid completely another life. And then this is the goal. So Kaivalya Pada talks about these two things. One is the Dhamma Mega Samadhi. In this life I'm going to explode. Uh, my life are going to be great. And that I'm not going to evolve again and then the journey is finished and this is the end of yoga completely. Okay? This is the four chapters of yoga what Patanjali describes. Any questions? Good. So now we go <laughs> now we go back here to the eight limbs of yoga and we're going to explore them a little bit more in depth. Um, Sanskrit. You don't have to remember this. It's more important to remember what it means. 
dull state of mind, is a tired mind. We, most of us have it in the morning before we drink the coffee, and it's like, uh, I, I'm awake, but I'm still sleeping, and there is nobody to talk to. Yeah? And so this is a dull state of mind, and uh, it's a, instead of being active with a lot of thoughts, it's like uh, nobody's there, it's very dark, it's very like that. Lethargic. Yeah, lethargic. This is a good word. Yeah, thank you. And uh, people with this state of mind, for example, are people with depression. You notice in the depression, there is nothing. You know, and everything looks very dark. I look back in my life, everything looks like shit. I look uh, into the future, no future there. I don't want to do everything. I don't have any desire. Not for sex, not for food, not nothing. This is the tamasic state of mind. So this is, we can say, dull. And then there is a, a third state of mind, is the sattvic state. Oh, we can say it's sattvic state, but we call it sattva. And this is to say that the mind is in his natural state, clear and steady. This is the clear and steady state of mind. So what do you think the yoga techniques want to do? <laughs> Where do we start usually? We need both. We are either here or here, right? We need both. We need them. What do we want to do? Uh, every time there will be one dominant. Mm. So if I want to get to do a, pr a process of right knowledge, what do I have to do? I have to move from here to here or from here to here. I need to do the sattva state dominant. It doesn't mean all the time, but it means when I want to get, most of the time when I want to use it to get knowledge, it has to be in this sattva state. And I can uh, also give a very good example of how this influences the knowledge. Um, imagine they put you in a room. And in the room there is different things. And they say, your mission is to tell us what is in the room. This is what you have to do. So they put you in the room and they turn the light off. Or the light is very, very dim. And now you have to go and you have to describe what is in the room. What, is, uh, what kind of information are you going to give about what is in the room? Incomplete, maybe. Not incomplete? Incorrect. Because this is blue, but in the dark, it will look like black. Yeah, And this is purple, and in the dark, it's going to look black. And then I say, this and this are the same. This and this is the same. Or I'm going to say, there is nothing in the room, because I cannot see. So this dark room will give me illusion knowledge not incomplete but delusion it's illusion um, so the tamasic state of mind that dull state of mind is like this dark room i look at my life and i see them not as they are and people in depression are a very good example because their life is staying completely the same yesterday everything was okay my work was okay my partner was okay i was okay and then they wake up with this uh, dull state of mind and they look at the same life and they say everything is shit. This is shit, this is shit, this is shit. It's not shit. You know, it's only 
that because uh, the mind is dark, it shows everything not as it is, but according to the state of mind. Another example for this is, for example, uh, imagine you want to smell flower. No, they tell you, tell us the smell of different things, yeah? but you have a piece of sheet stuck here in your nose. <laughs> and then you're going and you smell the flower and you say, oh, the flower smells like shit. <laughs> and then you go and smell the chocolate cake and you say, oh, the chocolate uh, cake also smells like shit. And then everything smells like shit and you are positive that everything smells like shit. But where is the shit? It is only in your nose. Okay? So this is the illusion that I think what I think I know what the things are, but actually I can only see the dark state of the mind. And this is a very, very dangerous place to be. And I work with a lot of people in depression. And the first thing I teach them is don't believe anything that you think in this state. You are going to think a lot of things about your life. Don't believe any of that and don't do any plans. Don't think about the future. Don't think about the past because you have shit in your nose. Okay? Don't try to smell. First, let's clean the shit. Then we will start to smell again. And this is a very, very difficult place to be. And then... There is a chemical imbalance though in the mind. In the West, we only explore always the form. And in the form, it will look like chemical imbalance. But the yoga doesn't look... The form for the yoga is the last expression of things. They say there are more subtle imbalances first happening. So when we work in yoga, we work in the knowledge, changing the knowledge, and then the chemical balance will change. But the West only checking the chemical balance, because this is what they can measure, and then they will try, they tell you, oh, take this pill, this will change the chemical uh, balance, and yeah, but then you become dependent on them, you didn't, uh, you didn't treat the cause. And, but the yoga goes to treat the cause, the more subtle things, and then the chemical balance will change. It's, uh, the West always, um, Western medicine always works like that. For example, I have a headache, they will give me an aspirin. They will not check my nutrition. They will not check my stress levels. They will not check any of that. But uh, this is why yoga therapy is so good, because it goes to the changing the causes, and then the results are different, not trying to cover the results. So like bipolar, if you're diagnosed with bipolar, uh -huh. you can be treated through yoga therapy? Yeah, and very successfully because it will teach you to control your mind. And it will teach you the nature of the mind. And I work with a lot of people. People come to me with the very deep depression and, uh, and anxiety and bipolar. And I teach them to control the mind. I teach them the nature of the mind because the nature of the mind is to be bipolar. Okay, it's changing all the time. So I teach them what they can control and what they cannot control. And the minute they uh, become skillful in what they control, and they, and they let go of what they cannot control, then there is balance. You know? There's this, it's very, very good. If one day you want to continue and study these things, if yoga therapy is so, so clever. Very interesting. Very interesting. Very, and very, oh, I love it. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, I want to give you an example about the rajasic state of mind. Imagine you are in the room. They tell you, please describe everything that is in the room. And now the light is uh, keeps switching on and off, on and off, on and off. What kind of knowledge are you going to get on the things in the room? Fragmented. Very good. Partial knowledge. And always only on the surface.
surface. Imagine, I see the mattress and it's gone. I see the mattress as in gone. So I can say the mattress is blue. But I cannot see all the little stains and all the patterns because to see the stains and the patterns I have to be there for a long time and investigate, to hold my attention for a long time. So when our mind is like this, scattered and agitated, I see some things which are correct, but I cannot explore deep. And we all know it. We know, for example, we, we try to figure out what to do with our life. And we manage to think a little bit. But when we start to go further, I lose the attention, and then I always get stuck in the same conclusions about myself, but I can never go and explore deep my life or deep my nature. So the agitated state of mind gives us always partial knowledge, not enough. It's, it's better than the illusion one, because at least there is something right about that. But the danger of partial knowledge is that I think I have the whole picture, and then I don't bother to investigate more. And there is the danger. And the satvic state of mind is like they put you in the room and the light is clear and steady. Is there? The light is there. Then what? What the thing you have to do? What is? Huh? Yeah, you just have to investigate. You have to take the time to look at things, but you have the conditions to get the right knowledge. So this is the satvic state of mind. Is the put the conditions to explore, to investigate, and get the right knowledge. And now see how clever that yoga techniques are. What all the yoga techniques do, they work in two, uh, two lines, we can say, or two levels. One is called abhyasa. Don't bother about the words. Abhyasa. Okay. I'm not writing it right, but maybe we will be abhyasa. And vairagya. And this is very interesting. Abhyasa is uh, what to do. And Bhairagya is what to avoid. Okay? What to do and what to avoid. So, look at this and tell me. Oh, wait, before that, there is a very um, very easy thing to say. It's like this. Uh, rajasic actions will lead to a rajas state of mind, rajasic state of mind. Tamasic actions will lead to a tamasic state of mind. And sattvic actions are going to lead to a sattvic state of mind. In a minute, we're going to do to talk about what the actions. So, what are the things that the yoga will advise me to do, and what are the things that the yoga will advise me to avoid? Hmm? According to this. <laughs> to do the things, actions that will cause the mind to be sattvic, and to avoid actions that are going to be more to uh, more, to put more rajas or more tamas in the mind. And this is the whole idea behind, behind the eight things of yoga. It will tell me, do things that will make your mind clear, and don't do things that will make your mind more agitated or more, more dull. And it is not at all difficult to know what is making my mind clear and what is making my mind uh, rajasic or tamasic. Uh, for example, what makes our mind clear? Give me some example of actions that make the mind clear. Walking in the nature. Very good, walking in nature. What else? Sleeping well. Sleeping well? Too much? No. Uh -huh. <laughs> Sleeping too much will do what? Tamasic no. state of mind, the heavy state of mind. Good. Serving. 
Serving or helping, you mean? Yes, serving others. Good. What else? For example, Express yoga practice. No yoga practice makes this mind sattvic. Expressing myself like art and. Very good art. Uh, very good drawing. Listening to some kind of music, yeah. not all of them. Yeah, some kinds of music. Uh, all these things can make my mind clear. Good diet. Uh huh. Good diet. Very good. Uh, what will make my mind very active? <laughs> coffee. Uh, for example, <laughs> coffee can make the mind more agitated. The town. Yeah. Living in a busy city. Yeah, busy city. Yeah. Many hours on the Facebook and the internet. Uh, in Israel, we have the problem of news. Many hours in front of the TV, listening to news. Very rajasic mind. Okay, all these things and the daily life are a lot of action, so they make the mind rajasic. And then what will make the mind tamasic? Too much. Sleep. Very good. Very good. All these drugs, the alcohol, the pot, it makes the mind dull. Uh, too much sleep, yeah, too much sleep, too much eating, too much dukkha. Dukkha will be the result, dukkha is the, the suffering. But everything that, uh, you know, is this thing, the heavy thing, or not going out of the house ever, mm. uh, you know, sitting a lot of hours. In the dark. Yeah, in the or dark in the sun. dark, yeah. And have you seen that it's all very, very interesting. The more I'm in one state of mind, this is, will be the actions that I want. Uh, for example, a person in depression, what is the only thing he wants to do? To sleep. And he will close all the curtains and no sun in the house at all. And a rajasic person, what will he want to do? All the time action, all the time action. And a sattvic person, to stay in nature, to meditate. It's so interesting that it's a, uh, there is a, a law in the nature that says similar attracts similar. Water and water attract each other. Oil and oil attract each other. Water and oil reject. So here also, my state of mind will attract the same actions. But we have to have a balance of Raja and Tamas, don't we? No, we have it anyway, because life... We have to cultivate that balance. Yeah. We can't live without being Raja, we can't live without yeah. being Tamas. But if you look at life, the Tamas and the Rajas will happen anyway. I don't have to make effort to make them happen, because the minute I step out of the house, I become Rajasic. Okay? And the minute I sit, I become Tamasic. But to create Sattva, takes me uh, a little bit uh, more effort to establish that. So anyway, in life they are going to change all the time, but if I want to investigate, I have to make the sattva dominant. In the mind, the sattva has to be dominant when I want to explore things. But when I go to sleep, I want eventually the tamas to be dominant. But I want to come there not from a rajasic state of mind, but from a sattvic state, and then the tamas will be good. And when I go to work, I want to be rajasic, but I want it to be accompanied with a clear state of mind, not with a dull state of mind. So it, it is this quality of sattva that has to follow us in life. Hmm? Any questions more? Okay. So uh, all the yoga practice is about to offer us sattvic actions that will create more sattva in the mind and how to avoid a little bit the rajasic and the tamasic actions. Not completely, but not to create over, uh, over uh, actions that cause that. 
So we still have to go into the eight limbs of yoga exactly and see how each of them follow this rule of putting more sattva and avoiding more rajas and tamas. But we have come to our uh, lunch break. Uh, <laughs> so in the afternoon session, we are going to continue and explore this. Great. Any questions? Requests? Okay. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we continue later.